Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Mike Merrill. And I'm Ken Jacobson. And today we spoke with Chai Vessarelli and Jimmy Chin about their documentary film, The Rescue. I'll throw it over to Chai to tell us what it's about. The Rescue is about the against all odds 2018 rescue of a Thai football team and their coach who were trapped deep within a cave in Northern Thailand. It really does track all the folks who worked very hard at this rescue, the people in the town, the Thai Navy SEALs, and very much so a group of largely British amateur cave divers who were brought in to facilitate the rescue. This is a big story. There are a lot of parts to it. And it's a story basically the world already knows because it was plastered all over the news in the summer of 2018. But Chai and Jimmy did an exhaustive search for footage. They kept after it. They had access to some people, but not to others. And yet somehow they managed to tell a complete story that is engrossing and emotional that whether you knew these events or you didn't, it totally doesn't matter. Yeah. And it's a lot about the technical aspects of the rescue, but it's also very much about the emotional and moral aspects of the rescue. At various times, the divers who were brought in thought about leaving, thought about this is too much, but they stuck in there and they did something that you probably wouldn't really have thought of until you see this, which is they took the lives of these children literally in their hands and they negotiated this very complex underground system for hours to get those children out. And doing so, they obviously opened themselves up to all sorts of moral risk and even, as was noted in the film, even potentially judicial risk. If these children died, they could have certainly lost their jobs, they could have certainly lost their reputations, and it's possible that they would have even gone to prison. Yeah, there are so many twists and turns in this film, no pun intended, given the cave, but it seems like every two or three minutes, there's a new obstacle being put in place of the possibility of a successful rescue, or there's another sort of miraculous situation that arises. I think this is the kind of story that would have made Homer blanch. And by Homer, you meant the great Greek epic poet, not Mr. Simpson. That is correct. Somehow, Ty and Jimmy managed to make it human and believable. Chai and Jimmy are based in New York City and Jackson Hole, Wyoming. The Rescue, which premiered at the Telluride Film Festival earlier this year, has been nominated for five Cinema Eye Honors Awards. It won the Critics' Choice Award for Best Documentary, tying with Summer of Soul in that category, and also on its own won Critics' Choice Awards for Best Cinematography and Best Score. It won audience awards at the Heartland Film Festival and the Mill Valley Film Festival and the People's Choice Award at the Toronto International Film Festival. Chai and Jimmy directed and produced Free Solo, which won the 2019 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature. Prior to that, they directed and produced the 2015 film Meru, which chronicled the first ascent of the shark's fin route on Meru Peak in the Indian Himalayas. Besides directing the film with Chai, Jimmy was one of the three men who made that historic ascent. The film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival where it won the Audience Award. It also won the Cinema Eye 
Audience Choice Award and the Cinema Eye Honors Award for Outstanding Achievement in Cinematography. The film was named to the 2016 Oscar shortlist. Briefly, Chai's other directorial credits include the 2015 documentary Incorruptible, Tuba, which premiered at the 2013 South by Southwest Film Festival, I Bring What I Love, which premiered at the 2008 Telluride and Toronto Film Festivals, and she made her documentary feature debut in 2003 with A Normal Life, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and was honored with the award for Best Documentary. Besides directing and producing The Rescue, Free Solo, and Meru with Chai, Jimmy is a National Geographic photographer and professional climber and skier. He has led and documented cutting-edge expeditions around the world for over 20 years. He's climbed and skied Mount Everest, and his photographs have graced the covers of National Geographic magazine and the New York Times magazine. You can see The Rescue on Disney+, and it will be on the National Geographic channel soon. Coming up is our discussion with Chai and Jimmy about The Rescue. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Chai. Welcome to Top Docs. I'm Ken. It's great to have you here, and congratulations on the truly amazing The Rescue. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you, Ken. We like to ask our guests, why do you make documentary films? I make documentary films because it's the only thing I know how to do. <laughs> you know, it's let's um, say do really well. <laughs> no, it's almost a compulsion. I feel really lucky that we get this opportunity to kind of obsess and deep dive into other people's lives and have this chance to bring to light stories that otherwise would not be told. There's like a political element to it as well as just a sheer joy in the storytelling part of it. I love making films and I love the process of it. I've always seen myself as a storyteller. I've always been compelled to tell stories about people that have inspired me, stories that I found deeply meaningful and that hopefully make the world a slightly better place. How did you go from the incredible Oscar-winning Free Solo, which documented free soloist climber Alex Honnold's attempt to be the first to free solo Al Capitan to the incredible story of the Thai rescue? If you think back to that summer of 2018, it was a pretty rough kind of political moment. I remember both Jimmy and myself being transfixed by this story, imagining like the experience of these boys who were trapped, imagining the feelings of the parents. And after it all, I think we were really left with this idea of how so many different types of people of different colors and creeds here. Sorry, I'll, I'll start again. If you think back to that summer of 2018, it was a pretty bleak political moment in the world. And I think like many people, both Jimmy and I were distracted by this story that was unfolding in, in Northern Thailand. We were transfixed by the downs and the ups and the like labyrinthian nature of what was happening. And couldn't help ourselves but imagine kind of the experience of these boys who were trapped as well as the experiences of their parents. And after it all, we were, I, I remember being left with this idea of how many different people came together of different colors and creeds and religions, nations, and only together were able to achieve what really was an impossible rescue. It was that idea that compelled us to want to make 
a film um, about the cave rescue, despite the significant challenges and obstacles to making a documentary film about the story. What were some of the immediate challenges and obstacles to telling the stories that you guys faced? This is the first film we've made where we weren't, you know, there for the, the principal action of the event. We knew that there was going to be a very intensive kind of forensic exercise in, in piecing together the timeline and understanding this really fragmented story. But there was also the issue of the fact that there was really very little known footage of what happened inside the cave because it was very limited access to the Thai Navy SEALs and the volunteers. There was no one allowed to film inside the cave. There was only a few clips that were available. There was some footage that the Thai Navy SEALs had shot, but we, we didn't understand that until later. So essentially we came into it knowing there wasn't very much footage of the principal action. It was a very international story. People from the UK, Australia, Thailand, and then the pandemic hit, travel was uh, very limited. That's just the beginning of some of the, the challenges. <laughs> but uh, there was also the, a rights situation, which is more common in Hollywood than it is in nonfiction, where one studio acquired the life rights to the children and their families, and another studio acquired the life rights to some of the international divers. So it was just like everything you could possibly think of that could stand in your way of making a good film was there. I guess the anecdote I really enjoy kind of symbolized everything was there was a monk, his name is Krum Bunshum, who played a very important role in this rescue. We were desperate to interview him. Like all I want to do is talk to this guy. And it turns out that after the successful rescue of the children, he took an oath of silence for three years and went into a cave in Myanmar. I mean, just one of the obstacles that this film was dealing with. <laughs> I guess as documentary filmmakers, you're supposed to be ready for everything, but maybe a three-year vow of silence is kind of unpredictable. We're a little bit obsessed with opening sequences on this show. We know they often pose just a huge challenge for the filmmakers, and obviously they're absolutely critical in terms of hooking the audience. In terms of your opening pre-title sequence, obviously you want to establish the who, what, where, when of the story, but what did you want to accomplish in those opening few minutes? In the opening of the rescue must have been recut. I want to say it a hundred times. There was so much information that had to be communicated, right? Just the very simple 13 individuals stuck in a cave. They're not dumb having gone in the cave. This is part of their life. It's like their backyard. It's raining. The time is ticking. And ideally you can land on your characters, right? your principal characters. And the way this story happened, like it was very hard to do that. Like, so you would only meet our, the international divers, I don't know, like, you know, 10 minutes in, eight minutes in, and that never worked. We solved the problem when we ended up being able to acquire some very important footage that allowed us to land in the cave during the kind of the initial exploration when people were just figuring out the kids were lost. It's always the hardest thing because you want to try to get so much in there and yet you also don't want to, it's setting the tone and the, the scope of the film. And for our, like our films, like we, we want them to be beautiful. We want them to transcend their subject matters. A lot of different challenges, obviously, like 
reading subtitles in the opening poses some problems and and you want that hook and i also just want to clarify when chai is saying we needed the audience to understand that these kids had gone in in june when the cave is open normally there is no threat of flooding they normally close it in july so we make that point but we did want to i think in the end connect people with the kids that were stuck like immediately introduced them. You mentioned early on that you were watching along with most of the world as these events were unfolding and the rescue was unfolding in the summer of 2018. What was your challenge in terms of the audience as far as their familiarity with the story, maybe the basic outlines of the story, but not necessarily the rescue itself? How did you approach Refamiliarizing the audience with these events, but also taking them to a new place. It's kind of a paradox about the story is that like everyone in the world knows the story. But if I were to ask most people, like what actually happened, you know, there are lots of different versions people misremember. It's, and even the actual participants in the story have different understandings of what happened because only 10 individuals went beyond chamber three, besides the children and, and four tiny Navy SEALs. And those were the international divers. They were not aware of what happened outside of the cave. People outside of the cave are not aware of what happened inside the cave. That's where this was, you know, an interesting exercise of like really using your primary sources and trying to get down to the you know, cross-checking stories. And we, I think we were the first prequel to do it. Like we had one really kind of important thing that happened where we were finally able to confirm how Saman Gunan died. And until we were able to cross-check that with the Admiral of the Thai Navy SEALs, because we, we were the ones who got access to him, his widow never knew. So in terms of what you're saying, we like to make experiential films. Like we're asking you to go on a journey with us. So the hope is that you get so immersed in what's happening that you kind of forget where you are and you just go with us. So, you know, it, yes, it was very, very hard. It's a construction thing, but we weren't that worried about it because the story itself was so rich. Like you couldn't write it this way. And if you were writing it, you would not write it this way. And I think one of those things that you wouldn't write is your two major heroes. Even before we meet Rick and John, we meet Vern, Vern Unsworth, a UK expat, and he's kind of a local cave expert who's advising the Thai Navy SEALs and basically anyone who will listen about the cave and what he thought was required to rescue the boys. By the way, for our listeners, uh, you probably have heard of Vern. He unsuccessfully sued Elon Musk for calling him a pedophile. He realized, it seems, pretty early on that the Navy SEALs, as impressive as they are, did not have the specific skill set or gear to do the job. I'm wondering, you know, how difficult was it for Vern to convince the Thai authorities to bring in Rick and John? No special forces in the world has the capability basically to enact this type of rescue. It's a very, very particular type of diving that's necessary. It's actually more caving than diving in some way. And Vern as a caver understood that quite clearly. There had been several famous cave rescues before, and he had heard of Rick Stanton and John Valanthan, who were those again, these strange like amateurs who are the only people who have this particular skill. The Thai authorities at the time were calling in help from everywhere. Like they called the American who sent their special forces, uh, Air Force Special Forces, the PJs. There were, there were people from Australia, China, everyone was sending in help. So I think it was just like, let's bring these guys in. Let's just try. Vern says, hey, 
here, I got your heroes. I got these two wonderful divers. They're going to come in and do a great job. And when we first see these two divers, I have to say my first response is, wait, these are the guys? These middle-aged British IT consultants? <laughs> what was your impression when you first met uh, Rick and John? It was very similar. They are very much unlikely heroes. And this film employs reenactments or demonstrations where the actual divers showed us in a tank what they did. I'll never forget when they showed up at the tank in their real gear, there's duct tape, there's ripped, there's still mud. I mean, the rescue was two years ago. You know, like it was the whole thing was, I understood immediately why the military and other people were kind of skeptical of their ability because it's just a totally different culture they're coming from. And they're amateurs, like they're weekend warriors. And that's how they learned how to cave dive. I think maybe my favorite character is Harry. I just, I love Harry, Dr. Richard Harris, AKA Harry. He's sort of the third main character along with Rick and John. What I love is he's incredibly frank with you. As a result of that, he shares things that you wouldn't normally expect to hear or see in a quote unquote hero. The funny thing about our relationship with Harry is to this day, we've never met him in person. He lives in Australia. It was a pandemic and Australia has got some of the most stringent COVID restrictions. So all of this was done over Zoom. But I think you could say that for most of the participants in this rescue, they came away transformed. It was a transformative emotional experience where suddenly this weirdo minority sport becomes a calling. Like they were preparing all this time to affect this rescue. As Harry says, the last to be chosen for the cricket team, first for the Thai cave rescue. But I think it's a happy thing they want to share. Harry just happens to be like also one of the single most articulate, lovely humans ever. His circumstances really best demonstrate, you know, the immense risk and moral courage that all of these volunteers had in that he's a doctor, he's a father. If one of those kids died, he wouldn't practice again. That's his career. And also like the psychological situation of carrying out a dead child when you're a father of three, I, I can't imagine that. He was still willing to embark on that with the hope of just saving one kid. Like he was willing to accept those risks because it was the right thing to do. And that's something very important to us. The film is great in depicting these heroes. What's a little harder to depict probably is the as literally hundreds of people who were helping out in the caves and thousands of people who were helping outside the caves, doing everything from basic logistics to pumping millions of gallons of water out of those caves. How did you handle that? So many, many people, an entire community involved. It was really important for us to be able to listen and understand and take in all the different perspectives of all the different people who contributed. I think as Asian filmmakers in particular, we were really curious about the perspective of the Thai Navy SEALs, of all these different volunteers that came in and present a complete story of what was happening. Because at the heart of the film, it is about moral courage and it is about generosity. And it's the generosity of all these people who contributed to the rescue. And the rescue could not have been accomplished just with the British divers or with Dr. Harris or just with the Thai Navy SEALs or just with the American Air Force PJs. It really took all of these volunteers to enact this rescue. It, it made it a, a challenge, certainly in terms of editing and, and trying to move the narrative forward, but still include all these different perspectives. And it seems like there's maybe some narrative correction going on here with this film in that there 
may have been the impression that these guys from the UK swooped in and saved the day. You both tell their story, but you also say, well, wait a minute, the Thai Navy SEALs and all these other folks contributed in an instrumental way, and this rescue would not have happened without them. It goes even one step beyond that. It's kind of a deeper question. Like, who's to say that Krumbuntrum, this monk, and his faith didn't contribute to the rescue? The children's faith certainly contributed to their ability to survive. I always come back to this as I'm biracial. My mom is Chinese and she's a Buddhist. And, you know, we've believe in lots of spirits. There's a lot of stuff going on. And yet my father is Hungarian and he's a professor of artificial intelligence. What happened in our household is what I imagined was happening on the ground there. Two totally different systems of faith and thinking that come clashing together. We felt like we would not do justice to this story unless we could include all these multiple voices. I think there is another character, as it were, in the film, which is the cave system. And you do some interesting things here. In some ways, there's actually character development. It seems like the first time we see the cave system, you know, like I think it's Vern's holding up this kind of black and white image. And then we get a little bit of color, you show the color version. And then we next see a 3D version. And then we see a 3D version with divers in it. Deep into the film, we fly in and join the diver inside the cave. You know, you had a choice. You could have shown the full blown out 3D right up front, but you chose to reveal it. Can you talk about why you did that? Just visually, we wanted to introduce it in its simplest form and kind of build from it. I think it would be a bit overwhelming to just try to get people to understand the scope of and the size and scale of the cave. Certainly it was really important for us to get people to understand the complexity and why the logistics were so challenging. And as we're revealing information about that complexity, people are starting to learn more about the complexity of the actual cave, but certainly developing the cave kind of, as you said, as a character was something very conscious in filmmaking. It's all about how, and when you reveal this information and it ties together with kind of the rest of the story. We were very fortunate because we inherited a 3D scan of the cave because National Geographic had done another show about the cave and they had done an actual scan of the cave, which we would never have had the resources to put into building out this 3D cave without it. We, of course, are very proud of the fact that like the cave that you're seeing, that 3D version of the cave you're seeing is the actual cave and it's accurate to, to what the cave actually is. We wanted the audience to be in the same position as the rescuers in that no one knew where the children were. So we're not going to reveal that early on. And slowly, as people are venturing into this cave, we're showing it to you. The challenge is how do you give a sense of scale? In Free Solo, the mountain never looked big enough. How do you describe how labyrinthian and deep inside a mountain these children are trapped in? Another way you develop the character of the cave is through your reenactments, which I think are incredibly effective and do bring us into the story right there with the divers. Can you talk a bit about how you did those reenactments? For us, authenticity and accuracy are hugely important. And we knew that one of the obstacles was that there was no footage of the actual underwater rescue for obvious reasons, because the divers literally had their hands full. And in order to bring people into that moment and to give people a sense of what it looked like and felt like. We knew we either had to do animations or reenactments and, and we felt strongly about d doing reenactments. But 
the way that we approached it was that we asked the divers to come in and actually demonstrate exactly how they were doing the rescue. And we had established a timeline. We knew most of the pieces that we needed so that we could be really specific and say, okay, John, what were you doing? What were you carrying? What gear were you using on day 17 between chamber eight and chamber nine? And with that specificity, they were able to demonstrate basically exactly the moments that we end up portraying in the film. So that's accurate to the moments that we're trying to portray in the film. The demonstrations were a learning experience for us in that we can read as much as we want about it. We can talk to people, but until we actually saw someone bind a child's hands behind their back and bind their feet together and submerge their face, the kind of the moral weight, the sheer weight that these volunteers are willing to take on only becomes real then, at least for me as a filmmaker. So there were a lot of little things that we were learning along the way by being able to have them demonstrate what they did. Do you know how you muddy a cave in a tank in Pinewood? No do idea. Do you want to do this? <laughs> well, it's Britain, so how about tea leaves? Close. So it's incredibly expensive and it takes a lot of time to drain a tank. We didn't have those sort of resources, so we're kind of obsessed about the muddying. It turns out that ground broccoli is the mud of choice. Like seriously, like all the big blockbusters, they use ground broccoli. What's really special about our demonstrations is we had this kind of documentary miracle happen where we found a trove of footage very late in the game. What happens is like the real moments in the film, like when the child is anesthetized, when they first find the kids, lead them in motivational cheer, when they come back into chamber three and let everyone know they found the children or the oxygen meter, all of those things are real. And so our reenactments end up being kind of the tissue that connects the joints. Dr. Harris, he is the anesthetologist and he's the one who has to basically take responsibility. This is a spoiler alert for our audience, spoiler alert, that the kids and the coach are sedated. That's the only way they're going to get out. It's a huge moral responsibility and not just moral, but professional responsibility for Harry. One of the questions that occurred to me is, did the Thai authorities seek out other anesthetologists and get their advice? What kind of input did Harry have from his colleagues and from other people before taking on this huge responsibility to go ahead with this? Harry is a very responsible doctor and he consulted a lot of other anesthetologists. There's actually another anesthesiologist who's also a cave diver. The Thais also sent an entire medical team to vet the medication that was going to be used to vet the process. But I don't think we could emphasize enough that like this had never been done. The only research he had heard of was of an experiment done with animals, essentially like baby seals, when they fall asleep, if they float away from their moms, the question is, are they going to drown or not? It was an anecdotal kind of evidence, but it seemed like the only thing to do. They had no other options. Their only other option was leaving the children in there and letting them die a slow death. And, and of course, there's the ticking clock, right? So it's not like they could go and do a significant amount of research and testing and experimentation. It was very clear that they had to make a decision then and there. Otherwise, they would lose the opportunity and, you know, that would be it. It seems like Rick is the one who comes up with the idea because we see the texting between Rick and Harry. It strikes me that a key factor in all of this is that Rick and John dived out 
four of those pump workers at the beginning of all this, and they did it when they weren't sedated and they thrashed about and Rick and John came out of that thinking there's no way we can have kids go through what we just put these pump divers through. So they had that kind of evidence of that nothing else was going to work. I guess my question is, this all feels so miraculous, but it's also a sequence of events and you're learning from those events as you go along. Yes, that is true. I mean, the pump workers were only submerged for 30 seconds, right? And also almost killed the diver at the same time as they're pulling out someone else's regulator. Yes, but as Rick would say, we almost made it look too easy. The point was that they had to be perfect every single time. And every time they submerged a child's head, it was a new risk. And the conditions in the cave were changing. It really is a miracle that they were perfect. You had to be precise in every way. The film talks about some of the mishaps that happen and like, it's lucky that it all worked out. There's a lot of coincidence and luck and I don't know, again, spirituality around the story that I think certainly contributed to the success of the rescue. So you mentioned risk and Jimmy, obviously as an elite climber yourself and National Geographic photographer, and then for anybody who's seen Meru, you'll know this from that incredible film. And if you haven't seen it, please check it out. You've seen risk up close and personal many, many times, but you probably haven't seen it in reference to cave diving. How did you kind of evaluate or observe the whole question of risk as a decision-making process for all of these actors, whether it was the Thai Navy authorities, the SEALs, or the UK divers? I think when it comes down to assessing risk, there is a process, whether that's cave diving or skydiving or climbing or military operations. And I recognize that process in which they were approaching, I guess you could call it the, the problem. Oftentimes it's kind of you know, starting out by identifying what the actual risks are, what are the best ways to mitigate the risks, what are the kind of costs and benefits of certain decisions. There's a calculation of if risk is probability times consequence, that's a kind of the simplest version of calculating risk. Seeing and being able to understand what each of the risks were and how they were approaching it was something that I kind of in the back of my head was examining as we were learning more and more about the rescue. And at a certain point, whether it's in mountain climbing or in cave diving or in a cave dive rescue, there are some very hard decisions to make because there's just not any more information in terms of like how you can evaluate or assess the risk. That's what was so impressive about the divers because they're supposed to be amateurs. They're not professional rescuers, nor are they special operations teams with tons of training for any specific area of work. This was new problems nobody had ever seen before. And the ultimate decisions landed on their shoulders, you know, an electrician's shoulders, IT consultant's shoulders, retired fireman's shoulders. And they had everything to lose, and yet they make the decision to go forward with this rescue because they had the moral courage to do it. And in many cases, it seemed to have changed their life, despite many of them being well into middle age. This literally taking the life of a child in your hands 
I think deeply affected them. We see one found the confidence he had lacked his whole life. Another finds love. And finally, to me, the one of the most profound ones, he felt like he was emotionally cold and he felt like this is a deficit his whole life. And he found out, oh, I can actually use this for good. It becomes a superpower. For everyone who participated, the rescue was a transformative experience in that the divers, like they are weekend warriors and they've spent like all their spare money going every weekend to put their heads underwater in puddles of mud. And they are all kind of, you know, misfits. Like they feel more comfortable underwater where no one can talk to them. They really have pursued this very, very minority sport, but suddenly through the rescue, it turns out that Rick Stanton has been preparing for 40 years for this one moment. So it's a calling. And just the self-confidence, the kind of validation, I think changed changed all of them. We all know what it feels like to be an outsider, like to feel insecure. And I think suddenly like an answer to a lifetime like that was this rescue where they managed to do great good with this talent they have. It seems to me like one of the lessons of the film is that so-called amateurs and professionals have a lot to learn from each other and that these communities need to be maybe in closer communication so that when situations like this arise, there's a relationship already in place. Was that intentional on your part? I think it's just true to the story. I think it's always worth mentioning that like the American Air Force PJs who are on the ground, Derek Anderson and Mitch Terrell, they're like the most elite rescue team in the world, right? They are trained in risk management. Their entire job is about assessing risk. And so it did take some very sophisticated like kind of negotiation and analysis to affect the rescue. They were kind of translating between the two sides. There was a lot of stuff going on that allowed this to happen. But yeah, I think bringing some humanity to any profession is a good thing. I have one compliment and then a, maybe a final question. The compliment is one of the lenses that I look at when I watch any kind of movie, fiction, nonfiction, is how are the quote unquote minor characters treated? And I think you guys do an amazing job of creating three-dimensional, deep characters, whether they're the so-called major characters or minor characters. We feel like we really get to know these people. The economy of your storytelling when it comes to developing these characters is remarkable. Thank you. And there were way too many characters in this movie. <laughs> I mean, again, one of those challenges, like we were like, no, not another person. Right. Well, you pulled it off. The creative process of making documentaries, I would say, also involves a rescue of sorts. You're constantly coming up against obstacles, having to problem solve your way through, be true to the events and the people you're depicting, and of course, tell an engaging story. What lessons do you think you learned from this film that you'll carry forward for the rest of your careers? I think it's a lesson that we learn over and over because we are accountable and responsible for the telling of these stories of other people's lives. You really do have to push to the absolute edge to make sure that you're getting it right and that you're doing everything to be able to tell the story in the best way that you can. And for me, one of the kind of most impressive moments in making this film was when Chai got her second vaccination and she flew to Thailand, did the two-week quarantine, and went to the Admiral's house of the Thai Navy SEALs to try to get the footage 
that we've been negotiating for for two years and that they have been denying us of for two years. And I just thought like, that's so over the top above and beyond that effort to me when I had given up and thought there's just no way we're going to get that footage. And to have Chai say, no, I'm going to get it. And her actually going to get it and being successful in getting this footage, which really kind of added another layer of the story that really makes the film. Is there anyone you want to thank who contributed to the film? We'd very much like to thank the divers for trusting us to share their story, as well as our closest creative collaborator, our editor, Bob Eisenhart, and also one of our executive producers, Tanette Natsiri. Do you have something that's up next for you that you want to mention? One of our next feature documentaries is about Doug Tompkins, Chris Tompkins, and Yvonne Chouinard, the incredible lives that they led. It's a love story, and it's about how they became the greatest conservationists of our time. One last question. Cave diving in your futures? With Rick? Maybe. With Rick, maybe, but otherwise, absolutely not. <laughs> With Rick, John, and, and Jason, maybe. And then, of course, Dr. Harris would also have to be on site. Thank you both so much, and congratulations on the film. We can't wait to see what comes next. Great. Thank you, folks. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Do you have a hidden gem, a documentary that you've seen recently or in the past that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves? Chris Marker's La Jolie May. It's still one of my absolute favorite films, but you can never find it. You know, I have like a DVD that was ripped off of some BitTorrent, which I then sent to Steve James so he can have a copy too. I've been slowly distributing Chris Marker's La Jolie Mae myself.